1: Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT Culture podcast. I'm Grizz.
2: And I'm Al. This week we'll be discussing the hit podcast Dirty John, the Netflix spoof American Vandal and the appeal of true crime.
1: Later on, Al will chat to Roisin Conaty, comedian, writer and star of her own sitcom Game Face.
0: My favourite thing about the Financial Times is that it stays straight as a newspaper. So when I used to work in offices... And I have to put the papers out in the morning. All the other papers, they wouldn't have the staying power. The Financial Times would always... The properly ironed paper. It would always keep its shape, like a very tiny house. We'd love to hear more from you.
2: Come and chat to us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash everything else podcast. Hello, Al. Hi, Grizz. How are you doing? I'm very well. Good week. I went to my first bump and baby club.
1: Mm, How was that? (laughs) Fun?
2: Yes, in in a way.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Nine couples over six hours learning how to, what to expect during a birth and how to cope with the baby and life after the birth.
1: How do you feel now? More prepared?
2: Certainly more knowledgeable, Mm -hmm. um, more scared. It's a very strange experience because you go in and you're led to believe that these other eight couples, these are now your new best friends. Mm-hmm. Um, so you look around and think, God. And then you spend six hours with them doing things like learning to put a nappy on a dolly.
1: <laughs> friends of mine who have had babies recently and been to classes like this say that there is this strange Tension in a way because you feel like you should become kind of bosom buds with these people because you're all about to go through this amazing and life changing thing together. And yet, actually, the only thing in some cases that you have in common is the fact that you're pregnant. You might share no other interests or you might have no common sense of humour.
2: Yes, there was one person who behaved in a sort of very peculiar way um, throughout the day. By definition, every single person who's there has never given birth. You wouldn't go if you had given birth.
1: So it's, all your, it's the first child?
2: Yes. And yet, she managed to interrupt and correct the midwife <laughs> constantly for six hours, to the point where you know, I wanted to stop and just say, can we just get this person <laughs> to take the class? The, the midwife she clearly was, knows
1: what she's talking about.
2: No, but she would often get things like sort of madly wrong as well. The midwife would say, oh, yes, yes, exactly. Well, I mean exactly it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I felt like I was having an out-of-body experience with her <laughs> after a bit. But apart from her, no, I think there could be could be friends.
1: So what was the what was the most important thing that you learnt?
2: In preparation for the birth, I have to come up with the playlist. And you know, so this is meant to, mm-hmm. you know, be encouraging and inspiring and make Emily feel happy while she's going through this big event. So I'm all up for it. I've got a nice playlist planned and I discussed it with Emily and it turns out that we have very different tastes in music. <laughs> I, w- I
1: feel like her music taste should be, well, tr- actually, should trump yours. You right, don't question- mind my saying.
2: She always trumps me in, all, in everything. <laughs> I would like my son to be born to the sound of um, Haydn. Um, <laughs> God. She wants to be transported to her mid-twenties when she did a lot of clubbing. So, and given that she'll be... High on <laughs> so, a cocktail of interesting drugs. She may get her wish. <laughs> anyway, so the baby will be born to drum and bass. I expect. <laughs> Deep have you, house. Have you been dancing to drum and bass this week?
1: My life has it's continued. The only
2: week that you, you haven't been dancing to drum <laughs> and, and having bass. having
1: a week off, yeah. <laughs> no, this week, yeah, my life's continued very much as normal. I went to the theatre. I went to see Albion, which is a kind of much raved about play. the Armada by Mike Bartlett quite disappointed by it actually why it's set up as a kind of state of the nation post-Brexit where are we now slash English country garden
2: that sounds like a (laughs) sounds like a horrendous combination it's
1: ambitious state of the nation
2: Brexit I mean that's it's impossible, isn't it?
1: Well, actually, I was queuing for quite a long time to go to the loo in the interval, and there were some old women complaining that it was um, it was too Remainer, a play, which I do not know was fair. Is but... it
2: possible to have a play that's too Remainer?
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's another question. I didn't decide to, to answer that um, or join in with that conversation. But no, it's very funny. He's a very funny writer. So Mike Bartlett's the guy who wrote Love, 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 and also Charles III, which was then put onto the BBC... He's very kind of witty satirist, but this is sort of straining for something much greater than that. This garden becomes a kind of metaphor for the past, the future, grief, family, the collective identity, and it's it's all a bit much. It's also over three hours long, which I just think way too long for it's a play.
2: Unforgivable. I'm not certain how witty Mike Butler is actually, but um, and if this was his least witty one. There I'm was not, not real, surprised you didn't it. There were like some
1: really it. great lines. I did laugh a lot. And the first half was good. I think it just took a bit of a nosedive. And also, when you live in South London, you just don't want to find yourself in Islington after 11pm on a weeknight. It's, that's just not, not ideal, particularly given that we're all supposed to be sleeping more after last week's discussion.
2: With us, we have TV critic India Ross.
1: Oh, yeah? And India, before we turn to you and discuss Dirty John, we're going to listen to a clip from this hit podcast. It came out just last month and has been riding in the top place of the iTunes podcast charts for many weeks. It's had about 5 million downloads. John Meehan is the Dirty John of the title. He is a sexual predator who... Praise upon many women, including one Deborah Newell, who is a sort of 50 something interior designer divorced with grown up children. And the podcast follows the story of their, I don't know if you call it a relationship, and the relationship between Dirty John and Deborah's children. In this clip, Deborah is describing what attracted her to John when she first met him online. And you also hear the voice of Christopher Goffard, who is the LA Times crime reporter who narrates and who wrote the series. Looked very successful, according to everything in his profile.
2: He posted a few pictures, said he was a physician. So I thought, hmm, interesting, seems safe. So we started talking. John Michael Meehan had thick, dark hair and a big, warm, friendly smile that invited trust. If you saw his smile on a billboard, you'd want whatever he was selling. He looked a little weathered, but he might have once been an All-American quarterback on a trading card. They exchanged texts, then phone calls. He said, you are so my type. And the last guy I was with said I wasn't his type. I thought, oh, I'm
1: so as tight. Well, okay, good. That's a good thing. So India, Dirty John, did it do it for you?
3: Dirty John did not do it for me. It felt like a regressive step for me. I've consumed a lot of these kind of true crime serials over the past like three or four years. And it was the first one I've come across that didn't gesture anything beyond itself. It had... Nothing to say about, like, the nature of truth or justice or subjectivity or even just how people live in a particular time or a particular place. It was purely the story of this horrible man, John, and that in itself would be fine if John were a particularly compelling character. But I just felt that he just wasn't. He just wasn't up to scratch, you know, in the world of evil, true crime protagonists. He was just a con man and a drug addict and a serial womanizer. Like He was like ultimately unremarkable. And like the comparison for me was the other podcast, S-Town earlier this year, in which the protagonist was so extraordinary and so interesting that in itself that just carried the whole thing. But Dirty John for me just wasn't dirty enough.
1: Al, did you find Dirty John a compelling character?
2: I did. He was certainly dirty enough for me. So you,
1: you liked the podcast?
2: I loved it, yeah. yeah. I was completely gripped. John is a sort of wonderfully creepy pond life creature. <laughs> I thought it had all the right ingredients. I thought it was suspenseful. I thought it had great music. The victim was staggeringly naive and helpless. And I really like the way Christopher Goffard says, Dirty John.
1: <laughs> <laughs> his, his voice is quite, yeah, captivating. Yeah, one day they're
2: going to make a great film um, presented <laughs> by Harvey Weinstein. Be like, Harvey Weinstein presents Dirty John.
1: <laughs> I have to say I'm with India on this one. I didn't find it particularly compelling, although actually maybe I did find it compelling. I did listen to the whole thing. I found it incredibly kind of trashy and very different in tone to serial which i think is the true crime right that's the kind of high watermark and sort of the first true crime and the first podcast really that really captivated
2: people and I think this it is trashy but that doesn't make it less compelling. I once read a John it's, Grisham it's not, it's novel really and about... I was completely gripped. I mean, I felt dirty after that. But, but I think but there's something. Grippy. I think
1: it's not just about compelling. I think there was something that Serial was doing that was really... You didn't know. It wasn't about who done it. It was right. about the criminal justice system. It was about this character who had all these shades of grey. I think Dirty John is described as pure evil. He's, he's a yeah. total caricature. Deborah Newell is kind of... Totally deluded and blind, and quite sweet, and you, you sort of feel for her, but she doesn't feel like a real person. No, at I all. mean the, ho- the
3: whole point of this discussion and the whole, the key thing about this whole phenomenon is that true crime has been elevated to greater than just like the salacious details that you seem to enjoy yeah, in Dirty John. And then, t- and then, so <laughs> like Dirty John is like the end of this arc where we've we've come back to like base intrigue.
2: I think that is. Um, I think that is a slightly pretentious remark.
3: <laughs> the <laughs> idea <fair>.
2: that the <laughs> idea that true crime has been elevated to a very high art well,
3: form. Well, like no, but I, mean, I think quite simply, and we will it's quite that, simply, it,
2: it, the appeal of true crime is that is is a very base appeal it's it's if it if right. it bleeds it leads you know th- this is what human beings love and sure uh,
3: but whether or not it's been successfully elevated i guess will come will come to that but that ostensibly was the point of this whole phenomenon whether or not that was justified is another okay. is it was supposed okay. to
1: be but more than than the kind of this most this, base true crime right. and was, i think the problem is that it's kind of it's posing as journalism you know there's nothing really that journalistic about the Dirty John. It feels like very kind of right. pulpy noirish yep. entertainment. But this is the most
2: journalistic of them all. This is actually run concurrently with an actual print story, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I it mean, had this, this in a very way, the crossover between form. journalism yeah. and podcast is stronger in this one than ever. No?
1: I think this this isn't really a sense of a journalist investigating something in the same way that in Serial, Sarah Koenig week by week, was really kind of wrestling with all of this information yeah. and couldn't make her mind up, but was also quite objective. I think Christopher Goffard, I mean, he's a kind of seasoned reporter and there's nothing inherently sort of flawed about his reporting, I wouldn't say. But no, there isn't really a sense of a kind of, of something objective and journalistic about it. I think it's pretty low
3: entertainment. He failed to at any point step back and look at the bigger picture of what he was reporting on and what its significance was. He didn't do that at any point. I agree. There was no distance. He
2: he does call him a black-hearted Lotharius.
3: (laughs) I mean, it's like like a literary flourish, isn't
2: it? Okay, shall we move on to American Vandal, the uh, Netflix series, which is a spoof of the whole true crime genre. Mm -hmm. We're going to listen to a clip from the first episode of American Vandal, in which Dylan Maxwell has been accused of doing massive dick pics all over the cars of his teachers (laughs) in the car park, and in this clip. He discovers that the dick pics that he's famous for drawing on the whiteboard are different to the massive dick pics that have appeared miraculously on the cars of his teachers.
3: i got to admit, this looks good for Dylan. Oh, yeah. This looks really good for Dylan. The
0: hairs, the tip, the ball size, they're different. None of this was mentioned at Dylan's hearing. What else did the school board miss? All right, take a look at this. These are the dicks that you drew in Shapiro's class. Yeah. Right? Of course. And then this is the dicks that were drawn in the car.
2: Oh. Yeah. Shit. They're
1: He's completely
0: totally different. different. Yeah. Wow. And we checked every single whiteboard dick that you drew in Shapiro's class all had hairs. Yeah, I never forget the ball hairs. It's just, I mean, it's such an important part of the dick. And like the mushroom heads all off. Mine's way different. I usually just do like a. You know? And the mushroom tip. They really... That's like a heart, almost. And they didn't even bring it up in your case. This is dope. This is really dope, right? Yeah, I think so.
2: Big fan of American Vandal?
3: I'm on the fence about American Vandal. I was predisposed to be irritated by this show before I even started watching it. American Vandal is ostensibly a spoof of true crime, but what it really is is a spoof of our fixation with true crime, with how obsessed we've become with it and how this genre has become so tired that its tropes have become ridiculous and it's parodying that. The issue I take with that is that Netflix was one of the major players in the true crime phenomenon. Killer kids, occult crimes, I've seen them all, they're terrible. So I just don't think you get to... Cash in on a joke about something that you had a hand in creating. You it, think it's heresy. I think it's heresy. They're kind I, of cannibalizing I, it, it was, themselves. It was they? incredibly disingenuous and manipulative. Setting that aside, American Vandal is pretty funny. It's it so it enjoyable. Is funny. Like it's I, as much to. as I wanted to hate it, I didn't hate it. It's it has a kind of bro-ish humour. It's very well cast. It's very accurate to the what it's trying to do. It, it does it very well and. It genuinely feels like a true crime saga. Gen- I was genuinely compelled by the plot.
1: Yeah, I think down to the music, which you could hear in that clip, the graphics that it uses, such as the timeline marking, like, was he at school between the hours of... You know, it's, yeah. it's basically serial, which also relies on a timeline. Right. They're kind of mapped onto an American high school, and it,
3: re- it really works. It, kind of, it really does work, I yeah. mean,
1: even the language that they use, they talk about, you know, he must have really thought about this before he did it. It was
3: premeditated.
1: It's basically like they are talking about a murder... And yet the whole thing is about penis graffiti. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's quite brilliant.
3: I, I mean, ultimately, the joke's on us because American Vandal was a huge success. They've just announced that there's going to be a second season. It's, it's perhaps the most successful of all of these franchises is, is the like spoof one, which is just, you know.
2: So we agree that this is an accurate spoof. I think where we disagree is that I thought this was instantly moronic and staggeringly <laughs> Al, unfunny. I knew
1: you would hate
3: this. I mean,
2: I couldn't believe I was watching
3: it. Is it the dick pics that made you think that? Because I think you need to see beyond the dicks.
1: No, no, I'm, Are you someone who finds uh, dick graffiti funny? I kind of think if, if, if that, you're
2: not, if if then maybe the, the show... If that's the bar, I think you've just asked me completely the opposite question, actually.
3: Al, would you have been friends with Dylan Maxwell in school? No, of course not. I think therein lies the problem. Um, but... <laughs>
2: I don't have a strong view on dick pics, generally. I'm not, I don't find that. I'm not shocked by them. And, and I, can, I can see that there, there could be a place for a dick pic. I think that this is the most overblown, yes. staggeringly unfunny, <laughs> joke-free comedy I've ever seen in my life. Um, I, I really think it was the most ex- tired uh, nonsense. I
3: do, I kind of agree.
2: The only people that this could appeal to are... Me true, and India. true crime, <laughs> yeah. nerd, true true crime nerds who love it and therefore can recognise all the different aspects yeah, of true fair. crime come to this from a slightly detached point of view and it is, it's embarrassing.
1: No, I, th- I think I think that's who it's yeah. for. I think it's, yeah, it's people. for people, yeah. and I think it is specifically referring to serial. You know, the kind of one yeah. of the central characters is this kind of dorky reporter for the school morning news TV right. show, who's basically being a kind of Sarah Kane, you know, that really geeky fascination with detail. You heard yeah. it there about, you yeah. know, the shape of but the balls and the ball hairs. It's you, kind it's of like, ridiculous. It's like the way you,
2: when you read a column by a famously witty columnist, and you know that lots of the content are jokes. But there's not a single laugh. I mean, you just think, oh, well, yes, that's quite clever.
3: Quite clever is, I like, yeah, think, a perfectly like accurate well, summary. Well, of- yeah, that's
2: a sort of spirit-crushing experience. <laughs> quite. The opposite being very funny right. or really enjoyable. I, I think it's or-
1: divisive. I, I did find it very funny, but I, well, maybe that's because I have consumed quite a lot of true crime and I just thought this was skewering... All the tropes of the genre so perfectly. I mean, it's inherently limited because that's kind of all it's doing. It's yeah. not going yeah. anywhere.
2: It felt like a fairly funny sketch that had been stretched into right. a whole series.
3: But the cleverness of American Vandal is not in its like artistic content. It's just as an exercise in marketing for Netflix. I mean, it's a, it's really clever that they should come up with this idea.
1: Do we think that you know the fact that Netflix is now doing this, that it's kind of spoofing its the thing that it sort of created, is this the end of true crime? Is the Has the bubble burst? It it feels like something. There's something bit tired about it.
2: I think any spoof represents the opposite. It's an affirmation of success, isn't it? It's a retrospective affirmation of success. No, 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 it's not. It's the great compliment to do a spoof, isn't it? Just
3: I think it's the coda at the end of the at the end of the phenomenon. I think it's celebrating a thing that's that has occurred in the past, but it is like a necessary closing chapter to. So you think what? this is the kind of expiry of true Yeah, absolutely. Play. I think that American vandal is necessitated by the sort of death of this of this bubble, the bursting of the bubble.
2: So there's an over proliferation of true crime. I think there was, nowhere left the,
3: there was nowhere left for it to go except to to refer to, it, to itself. To sort of parody, but surely parody itself. surely
2: true crime will come back. Certainly, yeah, yeah. I'm you know, not, I'm not saying know, it's ever. All you need is another Making a Murderer, another serial, and it'll be back being popular again.
3: I think this instance in the sort of lifetime of true crime I think this was a very specific episode that began with serial and I would argue is ending now, around about now, with American Vandal. So you
1: mentioned Serial. I think there's something about the movement as well from Serial to S-Town, which is the next kind of true crime yeah. podcast that came out of This American Life, which actually, as we talked about before in, in this podcast, is not really about true crime. It's, it's a study of this very interesting, eccentric guy. And I think, in a way, for me, the movement away from Serial, which was true crime, to S-Town, which is something stranger, is Kind of evidence, not only of the podcast evolving, but of true crime slightly running out of steam. It's not about who done it anymore. It's about this interesting psychological portrait of someone very nuanced. And for me, going back to Dirty John, that's why Dirty John didn't work because there wasn't enough shade in there, there wasn't enough nuance.
3: Serial was a moment in time, and everything subsequent serial that we've been discussing has just been downstream of it. Serial was the real beginning and end of this, and everything else is just a sort of echo of that.
2: So, moving on. Do we think that there is something inherently sinister about making true crime in the first place?
3: Sinister as in unethical?
2: Unhealthy? Unethical? Creepy?
3: Yes, in the sense that I think the ethical crisis of true crime is that in order to enjoy it as a consumer you have to be put in a position of being a kind of armchair detective that's where the kind of thrill of it comes from but that is an inherently problematic position because you are just one person you want a you want a jury you don't have all the information and so is the person who's making the show like sarah Koenig or whatever and she took a really interesting approach to this sarah Koenig, who made cereal was a really divisive host because she had a very particular style, which was to constantly acknowledge her own subjectivity to the point that it was almost like neurotic, like she was forever casting doubt on her own judgment and and saying, you know, I don't really know what's going on and changing her mind. I sort of loved that about her. And then. I loved it as well. And I think, but I think it was really clever because it gave her a kind of moral buffer. It like, it preempted cr- criticism of her being just one person. But whether that's succeeded in making Serial a morally acceptable enterprise, I don't know.
2: Surely the in terms of morality, it's just a question of accuracy, isn't it?
3: No, but I mean, there's, I think no, there's also a question
1: of motive. Like, why, why do you open a cold case like this? That the guy's in prison.
2: That's just prurient fascination, isn't it? Well, yeah, isn't that I think, just the I think there's a basic... question of
1: the journalistic reason for, for doing something like this. And that's what you have to ask.
2: OK, some people... Are interested in it because make it because of an urge for a kind of liberal vigilantism. Do you think that it, that's a positive moral urge to do it?
3: Yes, in the sense that in the same sense of, of any journalism that it's its like ostensible goal is to hold power to account and to examine institutions that would otherwise go unexamined. And like there are loads of instances in serial and in making a murderer, particularly in which. The makers never proved that injustices occurred, but they certainly opened a conversation in which people thought again about the way justice worked. They looked at inherent biases.
1: For things like you know, how you get confessions out of people, in Making a Murderer, there was the, the young nephew, Brendan, who was totally coerced into giving a giving his confession, which really wasn't a confession. Right. I think it see, it turned out. Making a Murderer is full of ethical can... problems, but I think something like that was just very shocking to see, actually, the criminal justice system... Right really not working for him.
2: Yeah, that turned me into a complete vigilante. I became obsessed with (laughs) Stephen Avery's innocence. But, you know, I was just shown a a very cleverly made documentary by people with a strong bias in his favour. Well, I guess this is the
1: thing. It kind of appeals to us morally because you can kind of get on your high horse and say, well, you know, the criminal justice system is so corrupt. Stephen Avery didn't do it. But then you also get the thrill of, like, who done it? You know, you get that
3: old school kind of Agatha Christie, yeah, exactly. true crime.
2: That's at the core of all of it, isn't it? That's much more compelling, who done it, than any moral justice.
3: Definitely. And to refer to like what we were talking about before about whether whether true crime has really been elevated, I think there's a thing that we've talked about before, which is this like collapse of like high and low culture that kind of seems to be pervasive in popular cultures today. And this is like a classic example of like true crime is like such a is such a base sort uh, of form of entertainment, mm. and so this idea that we are Looking at it, you know, we perceive ourselves to be when we watch Serial and we listen to Serial and we watch Making a Murder. We think we are doing a sort of serious moral interrogation of something, but perhaps we aren't. Perhaps, like Al says, it's really, it really is just a Who Done It, and we that's just our way of justifying our obsession to each other is that we think we're doing, you know, this is a serious investigation when it's.
2: I think. When it's uh, I think it is. the core fascination is grimness.
3: I think we're completely in agreement on that, but I would say that does it matter if ultimately there was an outcome that was greater than that? Whether that, for the people concerned, the protagonists of these stories, and you know, the result of their cases, or whether it's purely for our collective understanding of how these systems work, if there is an outcome that is valuable, even if we were only in it for the blood and guts, maybe then it was all worth it.
2: I'm nervous of taking a moral stance in in any of this.
3: It's a very dirty John thing to say.
2: <laughs> dirty John. <laughs> India, thank you for coming on the podcast.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: So, Al, I gather you're a fan of Roisin Karnati.
2: I've been following Roisin Karnati since she was on Impractical Jokers, which was a hidden camera BBC TV show where comedians set each other toe-curling challenges to do. And she was on it with other comedians like Simon Amstel, who I'm also a fan of. So um, this is like
1: before they were famous?
2: Yeah, she'd been doing comedy for years before this, but this was in sort of 2012, and I think this is probably when you know, she hit the big time. Roisin was tasked to steal food from other <laughs> diners' plates at an all-you-can-eat buffet.
1: Well, like kind of slyly, yeah. without being noticed.
2: Yes, exactly. So the idea was that she would sit down and opposite someone and just take things off their plate. (laughs) And and she sits down in front of an unsuspecting victim and just starts taking onion rings and moves on to a chip and and then takes a fairly big bit of chicken. Um, (laughs) The woman eventually moves away, but it was completely mesmerising TV. Since then, I've been her completely devoted fan and I was the best man at a wedding a couple of years ago and she was there and no one took any interest in in well, certainly no interest in me or or really the groom or or bride but only in her my wife was completely (laughs) in love with her she
1: was the star yeah and she has a new sitcom on channel 4 or e4 called game face which i've seen a bit of i gather you're a fan of that as well
2: yes i love it this is written by rochine she's executive produced it she's starring in it So she's done everything, really. And she plays a character called Marcella, who is learning to drive, who plays...
1: We can all relate (laughs) to that.
2: Yes, exactly. Can you drive?
1: No. Uh, (laughs) Funny you should ask. Well,
2: I only learnt to drive like four years ago. Well, then, you know, still got time. I took five (laughs) goes. She plays fairy princess at children's parties. She goes off to the woods to find herself and nearly dies. She... Copes with stress, with the Holy Trinity, carbs, fags, and wine. Uh, she's chronically lonely and depressed, and she makes all this really funny. It's uh, quite
1: dark, though, isn't it? I've, I've only seen one episode so far.
2: No, it is, it is dark, but and she's a total mess, and she's and she's selfish as well, which is kind of a relief because mm-hmm. you feel that she's not just a total victim, and yet somehow the show is oddly. Inspiring and uplifting, and you think, and you're rooting for her. Like other sitcoms in the past, I mean, I used to watch Faulty Towers. I'd find myself sort of rooting for Basil, awful <laughs> as he is. I'd be like, oh, please, just once, just once, will you will he win? And you he just never. Want something
1: to go right.
2: Nothing ever goes right. Marcella definitely gets away with things and has her moments. I'm in hysterics watching it. I completely love it, and um, I love her.
1: It did make me think of something we were saying last week, actually, about Chris Krause and the new comic female anti-hero. And it it strikes me that she's exactly that.
2: There is a special place for the actor or actress who is prepared to make themselves ugly like that and show an unlovely, unflattering side to themselves, which is funny, because I think... (laughs) I think that's what we respond to. I think most of our daily lives are spent projecting an image of confidence and general life hygiene. Um, (laughs) And to allow yourself to seem dirty and, and admit your failings is, I think, more or less the definition of being a human being. It's really funny. And people respond to that and often love other people who do that because it makes them feel less lonely.
1: Yeah, it's sort of the most relatable thing.
2: Yeah, and it should be sort of encouraged and it's brave <laughs> and it's sort of honourable. And at its best, it possibly elevates comedy from something which is just maybe just a laugh to something which is important and artistically valuable.
1: Let's listen to your interview. Roisin. Hello.
2: Thank you for coming on the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
2: I want to get a few things straight. Okay. What is your favourite thing about the Financial Times?
0: (laughs) My favourite thing about the Financial Times is that it stays straight as a newspaper. So when I used to work in offices and I have to put the papers out in the morning, all the other papers, they wouldn't have the staying power. The Financial Times would always... The properly ironed paper. It would always keep its shape, like a very tiny house. And I'm sure it's got very yeah, interesting stuff in it. Yeah. yeah, you should do. Okay, should be. Okay,
2: more importantly than that, are you learning to drive?
0: <laughs> I've been learning to drive on and off for about 20 years. I think I'm going to go on one of those intensive courses. Okay,
2: I took a long time. I think I took my test six times.
0: Wow, I've okay. never got to that level.
2: <laughs> are you presently in love with any ex-driving instructor?
0: No, I'm not presently in love with any ex-driving instructor. Have you, have
2: you ever been in love with any ex
0: no, just really made me laugh the idea of being in love with my
2: drone. <laughs> okay. okay. Oh, God, we I wonder if he watches going. and
0: thinks this is about me. Okay. We oh need God. to keep
2: going. Have you ever played a fairy princess at a children's birthday party? I have. Were you successful in this? Oh, uh, yeah, it was good. Yeah, yeah. You nailed it? I
0: nailed it, yeah.
2: The kids were happy as well as you?
0: Really happy. I'm great with kids. Big eyes, big teeth. They love it. <laughs>
2: okay. Have you ever gone camping in the woods by yourself and nearly died? No. Okay how often do you drunk text your ex
0: <laughs> not, not often. those days are gone it's after a big breakup i did not text but like i think i liked something by accident on, on facebook yeah i did that and i didn't know that you could unlike it no so i didn't know t- this, you sound like you look like a moron you look like a pervert moron yeah it, because you're just liking your ex you know announcing a child or and then you have to comment because it's like if you get caught peering in the window you've got to go and ring the doorbell. <laughs> That's yeah. your only hope, is to let them know, like, yeah, yeah. I, knew, I knew you could see me. You can't act like you weren't there. Which brings
2: us to Marcella. Yes. For the benefit of any listeners who, there can't be any, but if there were any who haven't watched <laughs> Game Face, which is Roisin Conaty's new and superb sitcom Thank on you. E4, Marcella is the character... That she plays and she wrote and directed. He did everything. I didn't direct you? it. No, it I didn't. Okay. I
0: exec produced it and I okay. wrote and uh, Basically well, I directed you did everything.
2: <laughs> and it's a sitcom about an actress in her, should we say, mid-thirties, <laughs> who's not had a part for four, four. years. I can uh, <laughs> sympathise with that. She drunk texts her ex. She's she's a mess, but she's sort of coping. Yeah. And actually, I don't know how you see her, but I I think she's like a hero, isn't
0: she? <laughs> I wanted her to feel like that. I wanted her to feel like someone... um, I wanted people to sort of, without being pretentious, I wanted people to see themselves in her in the kind of when... I wanted it to just start at a particular point in time, which sounds an obvious thing, but like she's a year after this twelve-year relationship's ended with her ex, and she sort of hasn't focused on her life. Yeah, I'm not. And, I don't really like that guy. I much prefer. that <laughs> I much prefer your driving instructor, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny. And so I just wanted it to be like that point in your life where a dream hasn't worked out, and you don't really know whether you're you should move on from it, but also you haven't got anything else really to focus on, like the personal life. There's, it's all up for grabs. I do think she's got heroic qualities. I think she. She's trying and she hasn't She hasn't lost that. She's not a nihilist. Yeah, but she, she also
2: is. wins yeah. quite often and that's, that's, that's such a relief. But the reason why I was asking you all those questions at the beginning mm. is, is Marcella you?
0: Marcella's my middle name. Oh, well, there you go. It's yeah.
2: done. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's similarities, of course, but there are parts of her that I think are not me. I'd say she's, she's as close to me as you can get in many ways. Um, Does
2: everyone assume she's you?
0: Yeah, I think we would, people know me wouldn't, I don't think they'd be like, oh, that's so unlike, you know, there's certain things that I think they'd be like, oh, that's not, you know, uh, because she's probably me at a point in time, maybe like four or five years ago, six years ago, that bit where you're like, oh, what's going to happen? What am I going to do? You know, like when I was 30. So you hit the big time. Well, I was 30, I was in Vegas and I sort of wasn't earning any money and I'd come over for this breakup and I'd moved home and, you know, all your friends start you know, moving in their careers and sort of getting those uh, signifiers of adulthood.
2: So what were you doing in Vegas?
0: Oh, it was a terrible thing. I chose to go there for my 30th birthday with uh, two of my friends and I had so little money and it's an awful place and it was so depressing. And then I had a chat with one of my friends and she sort of said a very loving way, but quite scary way. She's like, maybe you should give up comedy. Oh, that's And awful. that kind of, oh yeah, my God. I, I had an
2: uncle who once asked when I tried to be an actor, he's like, within about three weeks of me leaving drama school, he said, how long will you give it? Yeah.
0: yeah it I breaks was, your heart when it's I someone close. the rest of my life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's a bit of her that is, uh, she's quite hopeful, I think. I think I'm a very pessimistic person, but. Pessimist dipped in a chocolate covered hope. <laughs>
2: yeah, she's not she's not perfect, is she? Morally. I mean she, oh, she no. does not just bad things. Mm. She doesn't admit we don't want to do any spoilers, but she does no. nasty things to be She's cool. selfish oh, like and she, yeah, yeah, she's
0: selfish and she's you know, it's it's about her and those things where she misreads even with her ex showing up, she doesn't presume that it would be anything to do with him. Definitely <laughs> gonna be about me.
2: <laughs> You've written it and you star in it, and you executive produce it. Does anyone edit it?
0: yes i was in the edit we had a great editor charlie
2: but are you all powerful in the editing suite
0: i'm reluctant to say more powerful it's always a conversation with your producer and your director and the editor you know and everyone's trying to make the best show but sometimes it can be no one could be invested in it as much as i am i learned so much in the editing suite that's the thing i would recommend to anyone making their own tv show is it's a writing job as much as it is everything else if you need to lose six minutes from the show then the writer should be in the room. You know, you're losing writing and putting, you're putting scenes together that may not work.
2: Because you know yourself mm. so well and you know what makes your friends laugh and yeah. you know what your audience laughs at. You, you have such a sort of deep insight, I imagine, yeah. about your comedy that it must be possible that you can forget that somebody will come to Game Face not having seen you before and... Yeah. They will may find th- much more obvious things funny than things that you sort of dismiss and think, well, you know, that's not as subtle as my like my my absolute best comedy. Yeah, and that sort of stuff needs to stay in as well.
0: Because I'm a comedian at heart, by diagnosis. You pay such a heavy price when you don't get laughs. When you get silence on stage, you sort of tune in to funny in a different because it's like war. So. There's a level of engagement. I don't think anyone who's ever really suffered a joke not landing, I can't tell you what that feels like. All I can t- say is the physical feeling I get, I know when I'm not going to get laughed before I've even finished my sentence. I know something's gone wrong. It's 10 years of stage time, you know, kind of of going, something's wrong, you've hit it wrong, you've gone at it wrong, you've launched it wrong, you looked away at the wrong time. And that's what it is when you're performing. It's detail. So you can sometimes come across as intense <laughs> because it's a detail that in my head is so big because I'm like, no, 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 no. Like that has to be, it has to be that look. That look isn't funny. That looks funny, but that look isn't. And someone else will be like, it's just you doing two faces. Yeah, I'm
2: like that when anyone changes a semicolon. And <laughs> I but let's go back. Yeah. You started when you were 24. Yeah. I think this is the most exposing job in the world, isn't it?
0: Yeah, <laughs> it is. I mean, you've
2: talked about... A joke not landing. I mean, you're go, going, going up on stage in front of 30 people, 100, yeah. 10,000 people.
0: Why would anyone put themselves through that? It's funny when I think about it now, because I sort of feel a bit distant from the person who chose to do it. It feels so unlike me. <laughs>
2: it's brave, no?
0: It's brave, but it was hard. I suppose it's got enough immediate gratification if you get your first laughs. And that is sort of, I think maybe a lot of comics would agree with me on that, is... It's enough, like you a know. Shot of adrenaline. Yeah, it's enough. You get what you no, want. You want to
2: have that again. I yeah. Need that again.
0: And you can get it quicker and it's exposing and it's like a childbirth, it's a funny thing to compare it to, but it's really hard and and there are times when you're having such bad gigs because you're trying to it's a fine line between learning to play a room and learning to do what you want. You learn how to get laughs and then you've got to sort of work out where where you want them, really. Does it get easier? I
2: mean, I've seen you on Live at the Apollo and things like that, you know, and you've got your fans and everyone's going crazy and, you know, you've got the big lights behind you. Is that easier than playing a Tuesday night in Stoke?
0: I don't think t- TV gigs are never easy because they're always, I mean, especially in my life at the Apollo, the camera blew up or whatever. And it, so I came on stage and then someone's walking across stage so I had to go back off stage, come back on stage. And it's all just like a nightmare. My ideal night is always, you know, 150 seats, low ceiling, comedy smoke and mirrors. You know, it's a thing where you go, because some people say, Tell us, be funny. And you go, It would be weird because the context isn't right if I started just monologuing at you. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Do you appreciate a good heckle? No. Do you hate it? any heckle?
0: You know what it is? Because I watch so much as well, and I feel like people have worked so hard on it. And sometimes what looks effortless and chatty is a word women always get called, chatty. And you go, <laughs> no, no, no. Just looking like hiding the mechanics is what I think the phrase you're looking for. The timing can be so subtle. And you're actually binning jokes because you go, it's gone. That moment's gone. That line's gone, the throwaway, it's gone. So someone just says this thing and someone could be nice echos They'll be like, Oh, I like cats too or something ridiculous. And you <laughs> so you can't be like, What did you say? you know, but it's come in the middle of a bit and you've lost your beat and I think it's theatre. Like it's my I love comedy and I love watching life live comedy and I love I think if you're emceeing, when I used to do clubs and I used to compare quite a lot, if you chat to the audience and they chat, but that's great, you know, it's, it's, but when the acts come on, they've got 20 minutes. I think the audience aren't there to listen to you. You know, it's weird just like going to see a band and then a karaoke person getting up and going, do you like someone getting up and just start singing what they want to sing halfway yeah, through?
2: Some, some comedians do, or at least appear to mm. sort of enjoy it and riff on it.
0: Oh, no, you'd never know. I would never be, you know, you have to, because you have to save the gig.
2: One of my life ambitions is to do a great heckle. I'm going to put that one in the bin. <laughs> bin I'm not, not going to do no. that. You're famous in lots of ways. One of them is that you appear on panel shows as well.
0: I do, yeah.
2: Is it fun and exhilarating to be the only woman on a very male panel show like Have I Got News for You?
0: It's always better when there's more than one woman, as in life.
2: Do you think about the fact that you're the only woman there, or does that? It
0: doesn't lot better. enter your head. No, I, of course, I think about it because I'm aware of the progress we've made and the progress we have to make, you know, and the judgments that get made on you when you are seemingly reflecting a gender. I do Cats Does Countdown. I'm not particularly good at maths and I'm not particularly good at spelling on the spot, but I just don't pretend or I don't get upset about it. But some people, I sort of listen to this thing the other day, someone was like, her, I'm thick, me. And I was like, I don't say I'm thick, that's you projecting onto me. I'm not very good at maths and spelling, but I'm not going to cry about it. I'm going to make it fun. And, you know, I was like, but I've got my own TV show. Like, I'm obviously not going, oh, I don't know how to read. (laughs) But Having Got News For You is a bit different. Sometimes you can be the only woman on it and very uh, welcoming because it's a very intimidating show when you first go on and they don't tell you the news stories before, unlike all the other shows where they sort of will tell you, have a news for you, will give you like a call in the morning and then you get there and it's it's genuinely like you revise for a week, for example, you can't do stuff that week. You have to revise because if a question comes up and it's that you go, I know this, but I've never said the MP's name out loud and I'm scared to say it.
2: Have you sat there and occasionally just been frozen with terror and thought, my God, I, I can't think of anything. Oh, can't loads. Think of any, it's like loads. feeling like at a drinks party. He's like, I'm sorry, I just can't think of anything. Totally.
0: To when you first go on, it's really interesting. When you first start doing panel shows, when I first start doing them, number one, you'd always be the only woman on. Number two, you're by a country mile, the least famous person in the room. So no one knows who you are. So there's this immediate status thing. So my best joke, the thing i am like, oh, I'm so excited to say this, would get silence. <laughs> and so that, then you're in this kind of cognitive dissonance of going, I think I'm funny, I just don't know what's happening. I don't know why... But now, because people have seen you on there before, people laugh, more, you know. So, so now if a joke doesn't work, it doesn't work, I know I can get them back. I, I know they're not going to be like, oh, God, this poor girl they found in the kitchen. Yeah. It's more on the jokes yeah. rather than when they rule you out completely. How much of an edit is it?
2: I mean, how much do they record?
0: Oh, this big edits. So like, they do, yeah. You record like three hours, two they and, they and a half ever hours. Do they cut your best joke? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but, awful. you know, I've been saved by the edit in shows. Right. Sometimes I've done a show. I did a Cats once where I was like... Wow, that's the end of my career. Like I just wasn't funny and I just I was stuttering and and then the edit was lovely. It made me look (laughs) you know, fine.
2: Okay, so really deep now. Okay. Where does your comedy come from?
0: I like making people laugh, and that sounds very obvious, but I also like them making me laugh. And the best way to get someone to make you laugh is to play. (laughs) So I love the being silly and I love I like to be made to laugh are you funny in the pub yeah I was I was funny as a child like I'm a funny person
2: so your earliest memories as being just being funny,
0: just sort of out there just sort of like very playful very sort of like do voices or do like you know imaginative so I think my comedy is always in my head quite a lot I'm always thinking quite a lot about stuff and Sometimes I think it's just a way of dealing with the world, obviously, you know, news and topics and stuff like that. And I think comedy sometimes is a way of expressing your thoughts about something, to work out how you feel about something.
2: Do all comedians feel angry, scared and humiliated the whole time?
0: No, I don't think so.
2: Lots of comedians are angry though, aren't they? Yeah. Isn't that like the best spur to be funny? It's to, be, it's to respond because you feel angry about it some injustice or some absurdity or something that you see?
0: I think it is, but sometimes anger can kill the funny. I think you always need to try and walk around the parameter of the thing. And I think it's always good to row the other side. And I think it's a really good comic skill, I think, to try and do funny about a thing the other way.
2: Do you find that sometimes you lose half the audience, but you know that you've got the other half in your hand? And, and do, do you enjoy that?
0: You never enjoy losing any of the audience. You know, I don't enjoy losing the audience. I feel like, oh, but if you believe in the joke, if it's a political joke, then you're going to lose people in this country at the moment, in this world at the moment. Certain towns, you do a joke about Brexit, you're going to...
2: Do you feel obliged to make political jokes at the moment because of the...
0: What? I don't see how you sort of can't really, even even subtly, even like I think the days of like I don't I'm not really into politics. You just can't really engage with it like that anymore because politics seeped into everyone's life, not just Brexit, but you know all of the cuts. People who weren't talking about politics had to talk about it because disability cuts and stuff like that. that. It turns
2: out that all white privileged men are gropers.
0: <laughs> exactly, It's seeped into our world. Is comedy important? I think comedy is super important. I had this thing. When I was in America, though, I was talking to a friend of mine about comedy, how there's a sort of feeling that I've picked up on that maybe the world's too serious for comedy at the moment, or or, or that comedy's somewhat to blame. There's a vibe I've got. The late night shows they were doing in America, you know, after all the tragedies this year, and then everyone was very sick. They didn't do their comedy monologues, and I understand that. And I think maybe it's like Trump, like comedy maybe placates a little bit. If shame has no currency, which is what comedy relies on, is like, are we going to shame this man and then Trump got in but we were laughing at him and I think we thought by laughing at him it wouldn't happen and they bring spices to the Emmys and I felt like people really felt it again there like that comedy tried to make us feel better like listen it's all going to be okay but we were like it's not going to be okay and I feel at the moment it's quite an interesting time for comedy like Chelsea Handler has a show in America and she's given up to become an activist she's got the biggest platform you'll ever get which is a nighttime TV show but she's saying the form is limited you know like I feel like it's an interesting time, I think, for comedy and, and what it means and how we, how powerful it is. I just think that like, we really, really did rely on sh- shame a lot. We sort of have lost that in the world.
2: Roshan County it's been an honour and a privilege. Thank you so much for coming on the Thank podcast. Thank
0: you so much for having me on. It was really fun and genuinely interesting and not inane. So I'm really glad I came. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Thank you.
1: That's it for this week. Dirty John is produced by the LA Times and Wondery and it's available on all podcast apps. And all eight episodes of American Vandal are on Netflix.
2: And you can find Gameface on all four.
1: Next week, we'll be discussing the Russian Revolution with Viv Groskop, writer, comedian, and author of the new book, The Anna Karenina Fix, Life Lessons from Russian Literature.
2: In fact, next week is a Russia special. Grizz will chat to Maria Alokina, Masha from Pussy Riot.
1: How do you feel about true crime? Did you love Dirty John? Share your tips with Al and me at facebook.com slash everything else podcast, or you can email us at everything else at ft.com.
2: You can subscribe on any podcast app and listen online at ft.com slash everything else. Please leave us a review or rating on iTunes. It helps other people find the podcast.
1: Everything else is produced by Chica Ayres.
2: We've been Alan Grizz,
1: and our music is composed and produced by Fatum.